Welcome to the Story Story Night podcast, where you hear true stories on a theme, recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jessica Holmes. This week, we dine on the movable feast that was our November 2011 theme, Full Plate, stories of biting off more than you can chew. First on the menu, Mac Tess chews over the strange bounty of the Bering Sea. It's midwinter, midnight, in the middle of the Bering Sea, 300 miles from shore. Our ship is ranging into 40-foot waves. That would be a, a wave standing about five stories tall. The bow plunges down violently. The whole vessel shakes violently as we range on through the storm. Behind us, a sister ship ranges on the little swells rising and falling. We can see the lights on the top of the crest when we're sitting in the trough, and then it sinks away from view. I am the medic and first mate aboard a 365-foot large factory trawler. I went to sea for 13 years, all tallied seven years behind the mast. If you know Henry Dana Jr.'s Two years behind the mast, well, I outdid him by five. Um, The factory trawlers, if you know how fishing works up in Alaska, it's a very large commercial industry. And we haul aboard this 365-foot vessel filled with 150 crew members, a large factory, and a freezer hold the size of a basketball court. We haul aboard 150 tons of fish in each net. That's one big full plate. 150 tons, just so you know, that's a lot, right? About the amount of, say, 75 SUVs, uh, 400,000 individual fish. And by the end of our voyage, which often took two months, sometimes three months, out in the middle of the ocean, never seeing land, we would fill our hold with processed fish that had run through the factory. And we'd get, say, about 2,000 tons of fish. So again, quite a bit of, uh, quite a few full plates in this fish. So as I began, we're in a storm. It's a raging storm in the middle of the Bering Sea. It's a very dangerous place. We're pretty safe there on this large vessel. Uh, I'm sitting up in the wheelhouse. There is snow blowing vertically across the ocean. The waves are, as I said, towering at 40 feet as our as our bow plunges down into these waves, you're seeing a vertical concrete wall, if you will, smashing into the bow. The whole vessel would shudder and shake, and the bells would ring, and we'd be covered in sea foam and green water. And again, 365 feet long, the, vessel, the bridge stands about seven stories out of the water. So this is an amazingly large, what you would call, I guess, the perfect storm, if anybody's seen that out there. Not quite that, but close to it. We're not fishing at this time. 
Of course. <laughs> we have ceased all fishing. We are just heading straight on into these waves because if, if anybody out there is a sailor been sailing and you've been in nasty weather, you know that you do not want to heel over or list over. You want to head straight on. By the end of this voyage, our bow and our boat, by the way, you know, it's ice-class vessel built in Norway. It's got quarter-inch thin, uh, thick steel and it was all dented in. We had one of the bow hatches collapse and we took on some water. But that is the large vessel. Behind us sat our sister ship. Our sister ship was only about 70 feet long and only had nine people aboard. Our ship had 150, feet, 150 people aboard. And the captain of the sister ship, his name was Christian, an Icelander, began fishing, uh, leaving Iceland at the age of 13 on factory trawlers, and uh, never turned back. At that time, he was, oh, maybe 65. And he was talking to Ole, who was my captain at that time, a Norwegian fisherman who had grown up in the fjords of Norway. His mother uh, demanded that she, he paint his skiff yellow when he went out to sea at 10 years old to go fishing so she could see it from the house, right? <laughs> Ole and Christian are talking and, you know, how are you waiting in the storm? It's going all right. Everything's going well. And then all of a sudden, Christian gives a little holler over and he says, you know what? We're taking on water. We're taking on water. And Ole says, is everything going to be all right? And he said, I don't know. Back in the stern, uh, our hatches were not sealed. We began to heel over. A large wave came rushing aboard and started bringing water into the uh, lower part of the vessel. And uh, Ole was like, well, is there, is there anything can, we can do, right? And there's not much you can do, you know, when you've got a vessel behind you ranging up and down on 40-foot waves. Now, you have to remember, when you piling up 40 feet, right, five stories tall, you're looking up at something, and this is midnight. The only thing we can see are the lights from the mizzenmast, the, the green starboard light, the red star, star, uh, port light, you know, flashing sort of like stars in the heavens, and then all of a sudden they disappear, right, as it drops into the swell uh, 40 feet down. There's not much you can do as we're roll, ranging ahead, straight ahead. And so Ole says... All right, well, uh, do what you can, and certainly aboard a Christian ship, you've got, you know, the large-armed technicians down there. They were, you know, double-pumping the sumps, trying to bring the, as they were healing over on the uh, starboard side, so they were pumping ballast as much as they could over to the port side, right, to regain balance and have an even keel. And they're pumping away and pumping away, and water is still coming aboard, and another wave would come, and another right, and starting to fill up the ship with water, this crew of nine people aboard begin to, you know, they're working hard, and some of them are getting a little scared, of course, as you can imagine, and, you know, stability is starting, you're starting to lose the st stability, the boat is kind of, you know, the, the shipmates are all sort of cursing at the boat, cursing at the ocean, you know, she's wavering one way or another, all stability seems to be lost, and the captain, uh, Christian, finally says, everybody put on your survival suits. Now, survival suits, you know, most of you out there probably have the idea when you're out at sea, you throw on the little 
life preserver or, or, or the round little, <laughs> you know, life preserver. But we're in the middle of the Bering Sea. If, and this is the middle of winter. If you were to drop into that ocean without any kind of survival gear, you would be dead of hypothermia in about five minutes. So we have these large survival suits. They're thick neoprene, and they look, if anybody remembers Gumby, they're these mittens, right? And they co you're covered, it's orange though, it's not green, but you're bright orange in this sort of Gumby suit, completely strapped in. You have your head covered and just a little bit of the eyes showing. It's got a blinking beacon on one side and then it's got a radar reflector or a Raycon on the other. And uh, it allows you, of course, to get in the ocean and be all right. The ship begins to go bow upright. The captain is now in the wheelhouse, bracing himself against the bridge council. Other shipmates have put on, donned their survival suits, and they're stepping into the ocean because the ship is now beginning to sink. And we've got our fleet lights on at this time. We've come uh, to on the, on the waves, and we can see this ship, just its bow sticking straight up, looking into the nostrils of the bullnose where the hawsers connect right to the bow of the ship. And she's starting to go down. The captain is bracing himself, you know, telling our captain, we're going down, we're going down. Four shipmates are able to escape and get out into the ocean with their survival suits on. Up in the wheelhouse with the captain is the chief engineer. And he has sweatpants on and he's trying to get on his survival suit. And come as the ship starts sinking, a rush of air as the, as the water comes through, pressure rushes through the galley, through the ship quarters, throughout the whole vessel, and thrusts this man out into the sea and strips him completely naked of his survival suit, completely naked of his clothes. Can you say that? He's naked, <laughs> and he's out in the middle of the Bering Sea. Four people have their survival suits on. The ship sinks with the captain and three other shipmates drowned. So we've got our fleet lights out in the ocean. We've tossed out nets to gather people amidships. The men who have their survival suits on grasp onto the nets and we're able to hoist them aboard. Of course, this is not so easy as like just throwing a ladder down into the water. You're ranging up and down by 40 feet with each swell. So they could grab onto something and have it thrust out of their hands immediately. And, but these people hang on for dear life, right? And we get them aboard. Fleet lights are ranging, where's the chief engineer? Out there on a swell, we spot him floating on a mattress that had been ejected out of the ocean. He is a 300 pound man looking white as a whale. <laughs> We send out life preservers, fish nets, lines with rockets, everything you could imagine. He grabs onto the life preservers. He cannot hang on. His hands have gone numb. He cannot get aboard. He releases it. The nets he grabs, he releases it. Hypothermia is setting in. Then our deckhand, our Samoan deckhands, his name was Tatupo, a good man. Tatupo notices that the lines are beginning to get entangled around his arm. And we're running, everybody's at the rail, the whole crew is mustered to the rail, and we gather all of the lines, whether they be attached to our uh, chief engineer or our whale or not, gather all the lines together, strap them around our uh, midship's crane, and hoist our white whale out of the ocean with one arm. And he tells me later, he tells me later, he said, I, my arm's being pulled out, but I'm being saved, I'm being saved. <laughs> we pulled him up, 
and aboard, and uh, I was there with the hypothermia blanket, and we rescued our, he was blubbering and crying, and we rescued our chief engineer, and uh, sadly lost four people to the ocean, but uh, if anybody out there has seen Dangerous Catch, it's a dangerous world, people do die. And uh, I guess to end, I can say that when you're out on the, the Bering Sea, uh, fishermen are always taking risks, and we frequently bite off more than we can chew. Thanks, Mac. Now, follow your bliss on December 26th, when Story Story Night unwraps happiness. Stories of the Pursuit, at the Rose Room with three merrymaking featured storytellers followed by a cheer-worthy story slam. The show starts at 7 p.m., so make your season bright. Bring the relatives. Next up, a duo course on the theme Full Plate, with story slammers Richard Musler-Wright, followed by his daughter Amelia is Awesome, who both feed on overstuffed situations. Well, just let me tell you about daughters. <laughs> No, it's funny, it's funny. Uh, 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 when this topic was announced, I told my friend Lita, like, Lita, you should, you should come and, and do a story tonight. And she goes, no, that's my, I, I do rehearsal for the orchestra I'm in on that night. I can't possibly come down. And I said, no, no, no. It's, it's all about uh, taking on too much. It's too much on your plate. Uh, you could actually phone it in at the back of the rehearsal. And she started hilarious laughing, like, I should do it just because of that, you know. But it, would, it would be a bad, bad decision. And I think... Really, um, having too much on your platter, uh, sort of the joke is we take it on ourselves. You know, it's a decision we make. Yeah. We all rise to the occasion sometimes. Sometimes big things happen to us, but it's when we make that choice to take on. And we keep piling stuff on that plate. And eventually, you see that it was a bad decision. And you just have to stand back and laugh at it sometimes. Um, the two things you have to know about the story is, was one is I'm a type 1 diabetic, and uh, that's okay. You know, uh, it's just a condition, and it's manageable, and, but it means I have to really watch what I eat. I have to count carbs, and, and I take so much insulin for how much food I eat, and I have to always constantly be planning. And so it's really important to know what I'm eating and when I'm eating. And the other thing you have to know is that I, I work for the small company that uh, installed technology labs. We, we installed Lego labs in the schools across the country. And uh, a few years ago, we had sold this large lab to a school in Orlando, Florida. And um, the school bought the lab and installed it. And then they hired the teacher. And the teacher said, oh. well, she was the most obnoxious teacher I've ever met in my life. But she goes, oh, you can't teach anything with Lego. And, and so it was sort of a gauntlet being thrown down. So my company actually sent me to Florida to teach all her classes for a week, which to this teacher was great because she got a week's vacation, and she left. She didn't actually watch me teach her classes for a week. I was the most observed person in the school district. I had the principal. I had all the parents come in. Everybody had this great time, except for the teacher who was supposed to be observing me. But in fairness to her, she felt bad about it. And, and so at the end of the week, she said, I'll, I'll take you out to dinner. This is really the finest Italian restaurant of all of Orlando. And I'll, I'll take you there, and, and, and just as a reward, a way to say thank you for, for te teaching my classes for a week. And I said, okay. And so I go to this restaurant, and the, the finest Italian restaurant in, in Orlando, Florida. And I sit there for an hour, and she doesn't show. And, uh, and just as I'm getting ready to leave, 
this woman comes over, a middle-aged woman. She says, hi, you know, I'm here to eat dinner, and I see you're by yourself. Would, would you come to eat dinner with me? Okay, <laughs> you know, and, and I had this wonderful dinner with this woman, and uh, uh, she happened to work at the Birds of Prey in Orlando, Florida, and so we, we chatted, we traded stories about Birds of Prey area, and we had this very nice dinner, and, and this is the diabetes part, you know, it's, it's pasta and, and lots of carbs, but, you know, it's okay, because I could plan for it, I, could, I counted the carbs and gave myself enough insulin, and then, and just, and, and we, we parted ways, and just as I'm leaving the restaurant, the teacher shows up. And this is where you have to make the decision. This whole business deal depends upon how happy this teacher is. Okay? Now, in another time, I would have said, well, I've, I've eaten. You're two hours late. Um, you know, bye. You know. But the whole business deal depends upon making this person happy. So I have to pretend that I just arrived. Hi! <laughs> how are you doing? So we go in, and I can't imagine what the waiter thought. <laughs> and and the teacher goes, oh, you gotta have the pasta. So like mounds of pasta. Oh my god, you know. But I had I had to make that. I took that upon myself, and I and, and I literally had you know I had too much on my plate that night. So. <laughs> Why I have Amelia the awesome. The name is my dad. He will do everything, because I have chess, Aikido, which is martial arts. My dad wants me to be in Qatar. I have piano lessons, choir. I like five more things I don't remember. <laughs> well, anyway, we had the whole week off, and I really wanted to spend it, like, laying on the couch, relaxing, sleeping in, and... My dad told me we should do all this stuff, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> Well, we did a bunch of stuff. A lot of stuff. Probably more than I could count. One of it was like, we did, we saw play, we made stuff, we <laughs> went to a gluten-free store, which I'm gluten-free, so. Well, anyway, we did Black Friday shopping. We did a whole bunch of stuff. And I didn't really want to do any of that. And I found a, like someone that tells you that you love, that tells you that you should do something, you should do it, and that you trust. And I, I think I, like, I didn't, like, chew him, but now I do. That's the end of my story. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our fearless leaders, yours truly, Jessica Holmes, Anna Dimitriadis, and James Stead, as well as studio instructors Elizabeth Maqueda and Kate Riley. Theme song music and podcast production are by the Total Dish Dan Costello. Hear more at hearcostello.com. Our partners include Boise State Public Radio, the Boise State Story Initiative, Neighborhood All-Stars, The Rose Room, Bricolage, and Red Feather. A big thanks goes out to our story think tank, volunteers, and photographer Will Jones. Join us on the podcast next week for the final helping of stories from Full Plate. Learn more at storystorynight.com. <laughs>